All right, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. And to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we have come to chapter 17, a chapter that many scholars and commentators call the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. We get a real glimpse into the communion between the Father and the Son in this section of John's Gospel. And uh, this prayer is divided into three main parts. Jesus prays for himself, then Jesus prays for his disciples, and then Jesus prays for all believers. Now, we are currently in the second main part of this prayer. Jesus prays for his disciples, which covers verses 6 through 19. And um, this prayer by Jesus for his disciples in these verses can be divided up this way. Just five words that kind of the passage, this, these verses 6 through 19 are kind of built around. Those five words are identification, revelation, supplication, separation, and then sanctification. Now, last week we started looking at the third part of this section of Jesus' prayer. We looked, started looking at supplication. And again, let's look at what Jesus was burdened about for his disciples on that night, just hours before the cross, that caused him to intercede to his Father for his disciples with such passion and concern. Let's read verse 9 again. Jesus said, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Let me stop there. Notice once again, Jesus didn't pray for the world. The world referring to this fallen world system, which is controlled by the devil and is in rebellion against God and the people of God. Uh, Jesus earlier in the evening told his disciples, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you also. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you because the world always loves its own, those that belong to it. But you are not of the world. I've called you out of the world. Therefore, the world is going to hate you and persecute you. So that's just the way it is, okay? Now, Christians who try to be friends with the world so that people don't dislike them and still be a friend of God are, uh, that's a uh, self-defeating uh, proposition. Uh, you have to choose this day whom you're going to be loyal to, whom you're going to serve. Is it going to be the Lord Jesus Christ or the world at large? Because you can't be friends with both. You can't serve two masters, right? Now, Jesus, again, didn't pray for the world, guys. Uh, he never prayed for this fallen world system to be saved or to be spared from coming judgment. Listen, it is true, as we have pointed out, that Jesus loves the people of this fallen world system and proved it by going to the cross and dying for them, for us, for all mankind, right? Jesus wants to see lost sinners get saved and escape the judgment that is coming upon this world. Uh, that was the main reason he came to the earth in the first place, to seek and to save those that are lost. But, uh, and, and let me say this to you. Um, some people have said, well, does Jesus pray for the people of the world? And uh, that's an interesting question. 
Um, we know that from the cross, he prayed to his father for those that put him there. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Um, Jesus certainly wanted to see people, wants to see people saved. While he was on the earth, did he pray for unbelievers? Like we always pray for unbelievers. I believe he did. Uh, is his priestly prayer in heaven extend to unbelievers? Is he still praying for them? Interesting question. I don't know. But here in John 17, uh, Jesus is our great high priest, is praying for the people of God. Now, we know that is primarily his ministry of intercession. He is our intercessor. We talked about this uh, the last couple weeks. So he is in heaven right now praying for those who belong to him. He is our high priest, a great high priest, right? And as you study the Old Testament high priest, uh, he would wear a, a breastplate, part of a fairly elaborate set of clothes he put on uh, in his capacity as uh, the great priest of Israel, the high priest. And uh, interesting, when God uh, commanded Israel to make the breastplate, uh, he said, put 12 stones, six on each shoulder, each engraved with the name of one of the tribes, and put on the front of the breastplate 12 stones, each engraved with one of the names of the 12 tribes. The idea was, as he was wearing the breastplate, as he would make sacrifices for the nation, and then he would go into the holy place, and there by the golden altar, the altar of incense, he would offer prayers to the people. But it was God's way of reminding him. His main responsibility was to bear the nation on his shoulders. They were his main concern in prayer. He always had them close to his heart, was the idea, that he was to serve them because he loved them. Well, they were faulty. They, were, they failed many times as men, but our great high priest never fails. He's always faithful in bringing us as his people before God's throne. He always has us over his heart. His heart is always for us. He loves us. If God is for us, no one can be against us, Paul said, right? So we never have to worry, Lord Jesus, have you turned away from me because I failed once again today? The answer is absolutely not. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never turn from us. No matter how badly we blow it, he loves us and is always carrying us before the Father's throne in intercessory prayer. Now, again, verse 9, I pray for them, Father. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me out of the world is the idea, for they are yours, and all are mine and yours, and yours are mine, and listen. I am glorified in them. I want to camp on that last statement uh, for our remainder of our time this morning and then into our time next week. The question is, and, and I, you may just kind of quickly read over that and move on. I think this is one of the most important things that we uh, need to understand because we're here on the earth. Jesus is back in heaven. We have taken up the ministry he has given us. And the ministry he had was primarily to show this world what God was really like and yes, to die on the cross for our sins. We've talked about this, okay? So how is Jesus glorified in us who are his disciples upon the earth? And folks, some people try to differentiate between um, a Christian and a disciple. A disciple is being like a really committed Christian. We're all disciples of Christ. The Greek word simply means a learner. We're all learning 
and growing in our walk with God. But first of all, um, how is Jesus glorified in us who are his disciples? Well, first of all, Jesus is glorified in us by saving us, by saving us. Very basic, we have to start there. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers. <laughs> Every pastor knows who Spurgeon is, okay? Uh, but he said something I want to bring out at this point. He said, and I quote, When the Lord lay, lays hold upon a drunkard, a thief, an adulterer, when he arrests one who has been guilty of blasphemy, whose very heart is reeking with evil thoughts, when he picks up the far-off one, the abandoned, the dissolute, the fallen, as he often does, and when he says to these, you shall be mine, I, shall, I will wash these in my blood, I will use these to speak my word, oh, then he is glorified in them. Read the lives of many great sinners who have afterward become great saints. And you will see how they have tried to glorify him, and not only she who washed his feet with her tears, but many another like her. Oh, how they have loved to praise him. Eyes have wept tears, lips have spoken words, but hearts have felt what neither eyes nor lips could speak of adoring gratitude to him, end quote. It's always about the heart. Guys, here's the thing about the world. Satan has engineered the world, which he is the god of, right? The god of this world. Satan has engineered the world to appeal to everything our flesh, which is our fallen nature, craves. And think of 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, which we will quote in a moment. But Satan, as the god of this world, has orchestrated this world in such a way is that he gets people to think that everything they want in life, everything that will make life, you know, wonderful and fulfilling and meaningful and happy is found in the things the world is offering. What the devil doesn't tell people is, yes, Vanity Fair, and if you read Pilgrim's Progress, you understand. Vanity Fair just simply means the world and its allurements, in other words, sin. But what Satan doesn't tell people is, um, yes, sin does bring pleasure. If it didn't, there'd be no temptation with regard to committing it. But as God's word goes on to say, that pleasure, quote unquote, is short-lived. It will grind the life out of you figuratively and literally. Think of the parable of the prodigal son where a young guy was living in a good home. His dad was a good man. But this young guy thought that, you know, his dad's house is a little too restrictive. He couldn't really spread his wings and experience all he wanted to experience, all that life will bring him that would make him happy. So he goes to his dad one day and says, Dad, will you give me my inheritance so I can go out and make my name in the world? Basically, so I can go out and live my life without any restrictions. Now, in that culture, very patriarchal, the son was to ask his father for his inheritance before the father was dead. It was tantamount to saying, uh, saying Dad, I wish you were dead. The father could have disowned him, could have thrown him out of the house. But instead, being a gracious man, he gave him his inheritance. And you remember the story. They, 
kid went away to a far country and began to spend all his money on wine, women's song, had a lot of friends. When you got money, you got friends. And then when the money ran out, his friends left, and there was a famine in that land. And so the only job he could find was slopping pigs, which if you're a Jew, that's about the worst job you could ever have. And one day, and, and he would feed them these carob pods, and he longed to feed his, his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. And one day he came to himself. He came to his senses. So my father's servants have plenty to eat. I'm going to go back to my dad's house and confess that I have sinned. And I'm sorry, Father. I don't even deserve to be your child anymore. I'll just become one of your hired servants. You remember the story when he got home, the father saw him afar off because he was what? He was looking for him. Saw him, ran to him, hugged him. The kid began to get into his little pre-rehearsed little spiel. Father cut him off, told his servants, bring him sandals, put a robe on him, and a signet ring on his finger. In other words, give him power of attorney. Because my son who was lost is now found. My son who was dead is alive. That's the heart of our Father in heaven. You know, I mean, if we think we have things in the world that will make us more happy than we, the joy we have in the Father's house, well, he'll let us go. Not because he doesn't love us, because he does. And until we are ready to understand that the only joy in life we're living is the joy that comes from living in the Father's house and fellowship with him, then we're not really with God. Our heart's not there. So we have to go out and experience the world to find out for ourselves this is not where life is, right? But that experience, it ground this kid into powder. Because, guys, that's what the world does. After the world puts a person through its meat grinder, it spits them out onto the refuse heap of humanity, the garbage dump where the lost, the broken, and the, and the abandoned are left to die. Guys, this is where alcoholics, drug addicts, prostitutes, porn stars, and a variety of sinners that thought the world with all of its charms, quote-unquote, held the secret to an exciting and fulfilling life. This is where so many wind up, spent, exhausted, broken, and alone. But this is also where Jesus comes in, the ultimate junk collector. Amen? Amen. It is Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who takes those the world has written off and thrown away as hopeless lost causes, as those who are nothing more than worthless losers, and he reclaims them and remakes their lives into something beautiful and powerful and useful for his glory. I have shared with you before, uh, some of you, some of you are new, uh, a true story, a story of a man by the name of Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter. Remarkable conversion experience. Let me read his story to you. This is out of his own mouth, okay? He, he said, and I quote, From the time I began going to school, it was easy for me to make friends. This caught the eyes of some who began to groom me with political ambitions in mind. Soon what had started as, a rather, as rather innocent affairs began to turn into social events, including the social drinking and all that goes with it. It wasn't long before the social drink was not reserved for special occasions, 
but became a morning, noon, and night experience. The virtues I had been noted for began to disappear, as steam does when it hits cold air. My ambitious political friends left first. They, uh, they couldn't have faith in a young lush, even if they had been the ones who started me drinking in the first place. I went from one job to another and from one place to live to another, and each, each time both the job and the apartment became less desirable. One day found me in Chicago, living in a rat-infested cellar apartment in the worst section in the city. Why my wife stayed with me, God only knows. I, I have to believe she was a believer. I have to believe that. Why my wife, young, uh, why my young wife stayed with me, uh, only God knows. For the pain and suffering I caused her cannot be described. One day our little, our little child was taken seriously ill. A faithful doctor came even though he knew there would be no payment for his call. After diagnosing the case, he reached into his own pocket, took out some money, and thrust it into my hands, shouting, Mel, run. Don't walk. Run to the drugstore, which is two blocks from here. Here's the prescription. Come right back. It might even now be too late, so hurry. I climbed the stairs and was out onto the pavement. I looked to, to my left, and sure enough, I saw a drugstore about two blocks away, but then I looked to my right and saw that the saloon was only a half a block away. A sudden desire came over me, one that drove all thought of my sick child out of my head. Even the fact that the money in my hand did not belong to me was erased as I blindly rushed to the bar and shouted, let's all drink, it's on me. Soon the doctor's money was gone, and then some other fool threw his money on the bar and we continued on and on through the day and into the night. When it was time to close, I was so far gone that the, that the saloon keeper just threw me uh, into the back room to sleep it off. When he came back the next day, I was still there. And it wasn't until the night began to approach that I came, uh, I came enough to my sentence, senses to decide to go home. When I arrived back home, I slowly descended the rickety stairs. I saw that someone was talking very quietly to my wife, and they were crying. I still did not know why and who, uh, who it was, because I was still too far gone to understand. There had been no furniture in the apartment before, but now there was a little box on a stand. I wondered what it could be. As I went over and looked into the box, I saw that it was the body of my little child, but looking very different. Something, uh, someone had put on her clean clothes, new clothes, and somehow there was even a pair of brand new little shoes on her feet. Still, I didn't get the message. As I stood there, as I stood there, that urge came over me. I craved another drink. What I wouldn't do for another drink. As the urge overwhelmed me, I hurriedly slipped the new shoes from, my cold, from the cold feet of my precious child, rammed them into my pocket. As yet I had not attracted the attention of my wife and the woman with her, I stole out of the apartment and I sold those little shoes for a few pennies and I bought another drink. I had gone down so low that I have often said that I had to reach up to touch bottom. With all of this, I was not awakened to the reality of my true condition until one day, after some debauchery, I decided to end it all. 
With me gone, I reasoned the world would be a lot better off, especially my wife. With this in mind, I, mind, I headed for Lake Michigan to drown myself. Uh, it, had be, it had gotten dark and cold, and as I wove down a street that would take me to the lake, I was suddenly given a push by someone who said, Why don't you go in here? Excuse me. Why don't you go in there, bud? It's nice and warm. As I went through the open door, someone set me in a chair. It all happened so quickly that it took my muddled brain a little while to realize that I was in a room filled with men and a man was speaking. He was talking as if he knew all about me as he said, perhaps you have come in here tonight and you haven't even planned it. In fact, you had decided that you're going to end it all for you feel that no one understands you, no one cares, and there is no hope, my friend. I'm here to tell you that there is someone who understands you. There is someone who cares for you. And I can tell you that there is hope for you. You will find all of your answers when you come to Jesus Christ and receive him in, as your personal Savior. He not only wants to save you from your mess, but wants to go with you for the rest of your life to keep you from getting into any more trouble. The speaker was Harry Monroe, and the place was Pacific Garden Mission, a place we still support to this day. I became a different person that night. God saved me and made me a new man. My wife got a new husband, uh, a new husband, the part uh, with, <laughs> my wife got a new husband, the part with its sin and stain washed away, and I found a brand new tomorrow, end quote. The article concludes, Mel Trotter went on to become a preacher of the same message that saved his soul and changed his life, the message that Jesus Christ alone saves. He saw many hundreds come to trust, uh, to put their trust in the only one who has the remedy for broken hearts and broken homes broken by sin. He went on to found Mel Trotter Ministries, which is still helping lost and broken people um, Break free of Satan's power to live lives that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. You can visit them on the web at milltrotter.org. And I did that Saturday to make sure it was still there. It's still there. So first of all, how do we glorify Jesus? By getting saved and living a transformed life. Number two, Jesus is glorified in us, listen, by our trusting him in this life. One of my favorite Bible teachers was Donald Gray Barnhouse. One writer said, One day Barnhouse was talking to a man about the gospel. The man said to him in the course of the conversation, But what does God want? Just tell me, what does God want? Barnhouse said the Holy Spirit immediately spoke to his heart and gave him the answer to that man's question. He said to the man, What God wants most in all the world is to be believed. He wants to be trusted. That statement, guys, not only applies to believers who, excuse me, that statement not only applies to unbelievers who need to be saved, it also applies to believers, to those who are already saved. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. Not just get saved by faith, but live by faith. When we exercise faith in Jesus Christ and get saved, our journey of faith doesn't stop there. That's where it begins. That's where it begins. The just shall live by faith, which speaks of every day, moment by moment, trust, listen, in God's person, in his promises, and in his power. Let me say it again. 
moment by moment, moment, trust in God's person. Is he trustworthy? Is he there? Is he real? In his promises, are they trustworthy? And then in his power, is he able? Is he able to do what I can't do? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read this to you out of the NLT second edition. You all know Hebrews 11 verse 6. Let me read it to you. It says, And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely, it could be translated earnestly, those who earnestly seek him. Now, guys, of course, we read that verse and assume that it only really applies to an unsaved person, to someone who, you know, needs to put their faith in Jesus and be saved because only then can they ever hope to please God with their life. But actually, Hebrews 11 deals with the faith of believers. That's why it's often called the Great Hall of Faith chapter. These are some of the greatest examples of faith, like talk about the Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, baseball, right? Some of the greats of baseball throughout the years. Well, this references some of the great men and women of faith, those that know God, or knew God. Well, those that know God, because they're in heaven, they know God. So Hebrews 11 is actually dealing with believers. In fact, the whole context of verse 6 is, first of all, verse 5. Let me read to you the whole thing. It was by faith that Enoch, a very godly man, it was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and he reward, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so, guys, verse 6 uh, is also geared towards those who are already believers. Okay, yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't have unbelievers in mind at all, but I think it also is geared towards those who are already believers. And as telling us that the only way a believer can continue to please God is by constantly trusting him in every area of our life, every day of our lives. Turn to Romans chapter 1. And let's read verses 16 and 17. First of all, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's an interesting phrase. In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to to faith. Well, what does that mean? I'll tell you what I believe it means. Our life is like we're on a staircase, okay, moving towards God. 
I'd say a staircase to heaven, but that phrase has been tainted, so I'm not going to go there. But every time in our lives when we exercise faith in one situation, we take a step closer to God. The trials become a little more difficult, and as we exercise faith in that current trial, whatever it is, we take another step higher in the stairway, higher towards God. It speaks of a walk or a life of continual faith and believing in God. The just shall live by faith, right? One author put it well when he said, Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Do you live as though you really trust this God who sent Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Do you trust the Savior himself? You do not trust him if you complain about your circumstances. You do not trust him if you, if you always worry about the future. You do not trust him if you are fretting over small disappointments every day. On the contrary, you trust him and thus glorify the Lord when you say, I am his and I will go his way. I am glad to let him have his way with me, whatever the circumstances and whatever the sorrows. Because God won't always lead us into happy situations that have happy endings. The cross was not happy for Jesus. He endured the shame, looking forward to the glory afterward. But the will of God will often lead us through some very dark places. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's a, I'm going to get through it. Thank God he didn't say, though I dropped dead in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm going to walk through some dark places as I follow the Lord. He's the shepherd. But in those difficult and dark times, I need to draw close to him. I need to keep my eyes on him. I need to trust him no matter what. That's the secret to living the Christian life. And it really isn't a secret. It's on almost every page of the New Testament, right? So once again, guys, how was Jesus glorified in us? Well, Jesus is glorified in us by saving us. Number two, Jesus is glorified in us by our trusting him in this life. And number three, we'll end with this, pick it up next week. Number three, Jesus is glorified in us when we live a holy life. Now, please don't turn your brains off. Because this is a subject that a lot of Christians don't want to really get into. They're not interested. They're not interested. It's not going to help them in many ways. So they hear any preacher talking about holiness, click. Uh, what are we having for lunch after church? Let's go over to, you know, please don't turn your brains off. Hear me, okay? I mean, do you realize that holiness is the attribute of God most mentioned in the pages of Scripture? If you were to ask the average Christian, I'm convinced, if you were to ask the average Christian, what is the attribute of God mentioned most in the Bible? I'm convinced they would no doubt tell you love, love. But that would be incorrect. To be sure, God's love is a wonderful attribute, no doubt about it. All right? Made all the more wonderful because we don't deserve it. I mean, there's nothing in us that could possibly cause God to love us. And yet he does. In fact, he loved us while we were still sinners. Didn't Paul say that in Romans 5, verse 8? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, guys, the love, of, the love of God is an awesome attribute that we are so appreciative of and praise him for. But as wonderful as God's love is, it is not the attribute of God most mentioned in the Bible. The attribute of God most mentioned is, again, 
holiness. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 4. You don't really need to turn there. I'll read it to you. As John sees a vision of the throne of God, he sees around the throne these four living creatures, they're called. These are high-ranking angels, all right, high-ranking angels. You can read the whole passage to, to see what these living creatures look like. And the King James, unfortunately, says four living beasts. That's a terrible translation. They're not beasts. They're not animals. These are uh, very sophisticated, high-level angels. All right? And what are they doing standing around the throne of God? Well, verse 8 tells us, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Notice they don't say love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty or grace, grace, grace is the Lord God Almighty. As awesome, awesome as those attributes are, they say holy, holy, holy again. If there's one attribute that describes God more than any other, it is his holiness. But what does that mean? What does it mean? One author defined God's holiness this way. He said, and I quote, God's holiness is his utter and complete separation from evil in any and every form. He is absolutely untainted by any evil, error, or wrongdoing. Now, John said in his first epistle, God is light and in him dwells no darkness at all. At all. He's light. Absolute purity. Okay. He is absolutely untainted by any evil, error, or wrongdoing. Unlike angels, some of them, some of whom have sinned, or humans, all of whom have sinned, uh, and so on, end quote. Um, you say, is holiness something that is important to God for our lives as his people? Well, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, in these days where so many want their ears tickled and want to come to church so that pastors will tell them what God wants to give them, what God wants to do for them, that God exists to make them happy, fulfill their dreams, bless their businesses, etc. Holiness is not a subject that is interesting to them. They write it off. And in so doing, they teach themselves that it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Peter said in his first epistle, chapter 1, starting with verse 14, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former... He's talking about, of course, now as people of God saved, of course. How are we to live? Well, as obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, your old life, as in your ignorance... But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. If you really want to know how important it is, I'll just read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now listen. I believe the writer there is not talking about actions. He's talking about a position. 
What do I mean by that? When you give your heart to Christ, we are placed in Christ. That is our position now. And because Jesus is holy, blameless, righteous, etc., we are all those things positionally in the eyes of God because we're in Christ. No one Without holiness, no one is going to see the Lord. Without being in Christ and being the recipient of His holiness, well, no one, no one will see the Lord because they're not saved. How do I know if I'm in Christ? Okay, well then it's all about being in Christ, right? All about being saved. Well, how do I know if I'm really saved? How do I know if I'm really in Christ? One of the, one of the big ways, do you desire holiness in your life? Do you des- what does that mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word that also is translated separation. It's sanctification, but the idea is separation from the world. Yeah, guys, we all know that. I don't have to tell you this. When we got saved, we didn't know what happened at that moment in time, but all, all of a sudden we just felt different. I know that the stuff I was doing up until that moment... All of a sudden, I knew it was wrong. I didn't want to do it anymore. That was, and I didn't know the theology around it until I studied the Word, but here's what happened. God had taken me out of the world and placed me in Christ. I had been separated from the world, and now I was God's own special possession. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, had moved inside and began to do immediately what He would continue to do the rest of my life and the rest of your life, is make us more and more holy. Which means more and more separating us from the world, the world's values, the world's ideas, the world's treasures, to draw closer and closer to God. Um, here's 1 John 2. Verses, I'll read 15 to 17 out of the NLT 2nd edition. Can Christians still love the world? Yeah, it's called carnal Christianity. If you're still loving the world, craving the world, pursuing the world, you might be saved. I don't know your heart. It's still possible you're saved. But those are marks of a carnal Christian. What is the marks of a spirit-filled Christian? They want to be holy. But here's what John said to those who are wrestling with a love for the world and having a love for God. He said, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in all of our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world, this fallen world, Satan-controlled system. And the world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God, some translations say, uh, but whoever does the will of God will live. So if we're going to bring the most glory to Jesus as his disciples, we must, through the power of the Holy Spirit, live lives of holiness. One writer said, 
If we live in if we live in spiritual adultery, compromising with the values of our society, if the priorities of non-Christian of our non-Christian culture become our priorities, we are not living in a way that glorifies him. But if by contrast the priorities of the word of God seize upon us and we strive for holiness in our lives, then we do glorify him. One passage that defines, out of many, one passage that defines holy living, listen, this is, this is where we are living, in Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? And one passage that really deals or defines holy living does so in, in terms of sexual purity, sexual purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 8, where Paul said, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already, we know that, but we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember that what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will for you is to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Now you fill in the blank. I don't know what you're wrestling with. But whatever it is, if it's a sexual sin, it doesn't please God. Don't make excuses for it. Hate it. Fall on your face, broken, weeping, crying out to God for the grace to stop. But don't make excuses for it because the culture wants you to. Well, everyone does it. Oh, my man. This is how men, what we do. No. You're not a worldly man. You're a child of the living God and that brings with it certain responsibilities and new life changes right for God's will is for you to be holy so stay away from all sexual sin then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor and honor not, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways Neither harm, neither harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all, avenges all such sins as we have solemnly, solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives us his holy spirit now let me just say this and we'll close and i really want to say this because this is very important to this point okay so please listen to me let me say to you that because holiness is an attribute of god of god's character in other words it is only found in his nature alone that means that living a life of holiness can only be done by listen a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit within us. Here's a good one. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 to 13. And may the Lord, may the Lord, make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he, the Lord, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at his come at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints who makes us holy the Lord 
A few um, months back, one of our uh, books of the quarter was Andrew Murray's Abide in Christ, a classic. I had read this book many years ago, and I remembered it. And so we uh, offered it as uh, our book of the quarter. Well, um, a few weeks ago, as we were going through John's gospel, talking about abiding in Christ, I decided, you know, Holy Spirit kind of laid it on my heart to pull it out and read it again. The ones we were offering are nice because they're broken into like 30 or 31 parts, so you could read it one little chapter a day for the month. So it's a, a, a one little chapter every day for a month. It's a devotional, okay? If you haven't read that book, or if you read it a long time ago, can I really encourage you to pull it out and read it again? Because Murray says something. He was a classic writer. In fact, I went out and bought two others of his books. I, I had them. I gave them away. I bought them again. I'm not going to do the, the, the Biden Christ justice by just throwing some thoughts out. You've got to read, read it. It's incredible. I, I, I could never read it in a month. I mean, I'm, I'm reading, rereading. It's taken me forever to get through the book because I just can't speed read it. I've got to meditate on it, right? In fact, I started highlighting things. I knew that was going to be a mistake. The whole thing's highlighted. I mean, maybe a, a verse here, a little sentence here, but the whole thing is highlighted. Right? That, that shoots that out the window, all right? But I'll just read you one portion, okay, and we'll close. In the chapter, Through the Holy Spirit, Through the Holy Spirit, Murray had this to say, and I quote. He starts with 1 John, quoting 1 John 2, verse 27. The anointing that you've received from him abides in you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Murray said, treat this teaching as a spiritual practice, something you do every day, you realize every day. Remind yourself regularly that as surely as you are in Christ, you're saved, the Holy Spirit is in you. He will do his work in you with power as you believe in his presence and submit to his ministry. Even when you cannot discern his work in you, make it a practice to affirm your belief that he is, in fact, working in you. Ask the Father to aid your belief. In other words, give you strength to believe this very truth. Remembering that it is impossible to abide in Christ as a way of life without being, being full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's fullness in you was, in fact, your daily portion, the guarantee of the fuller reality of your relationship with God. In other words, since holiness is an attribute of God's holy nature, the only way we could ever know it or walk in it uh, is if it was planted in us by the Holy Spirit. And that happened uh, at the moment of salvation. In his first epistle, a second epistle, I should say, chapter 1, verse 4, Peter tells us, that when we received Jesus into our hearts by faith, the moment we were saved, the Holy Spirit came to live within us. And because he is God, he poured the nature of God into us. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 5, we, in fact, Peter, we, the way Peter puts it, we become a partaker of God's divine nature. In Romans 5, verse 5, Paul alludes to this and says, now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Well, that's just one attribute. It applies for all the attributes, not just God's love and so on. It also applies for something like holiness, um, maybe especially holiness. 
And yet, guys, when the Holy Spirit moves in, he fills us with God's nature. All the attributes of God that we couldn't manifest in our own hearts and lives because these are divine uh, uh, attributes, right? The only way for these attributes that are there now to take root and begin to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's God's divine attributes coming forth from our lives. How do we manifest these things? They're there. How do I manifest the love of God? How do I manifest holiness? Holiness by faith. By faith. In other words, you have to trust that as God is in you, as Jesus Christ is living his life through you through the power of the Spirit, you have to believe that. You have to every day. In fact, Murray encourages throughout the day, keep telling yourself, I abide in Christ. Not because I do it, but because God is doing it through me. He's doing it because that's his desire, that we abide in him. But it's by faith. It's by, you'll kill it. You'll kill the power of God in your life, working in that regard, if you try to do it in your own flesh strength. That's how we kill the work of God. We think, well, how come I'm not seeing it? If, if it's God's in me and he wants this to my holiness and discipline and so, well, why do I not see it manifested? Because you're trying to approach those things and acquire those things by working harder. More spiritual activities. If I go to church more, read the Bible more, witness to more people, somehow I will achieve the things God wants for my life. Having begun in the spirit, are we now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Of course not. It's a pitfall that many Christians fall into. The just shall live by faith. We have to trust that, Lord, you're there. I can't do it. Paul said, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I, I can't do it, Lord. I can't work really hard to be all you want me to be because it holy, one of the big things, I don't have it in me, in my strength, in my flesh. But I can trust you that you're working. Believe that. Thank you for what you're doing, even though I don't see it all the time. And it will manifest. The fruit will come. So we will pick it up next week, um, finishing this one little section and um, asking God to bless. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of your word, Lord, that have always been there, but maybe we have glossed over them. Maybe we haven't fully understood what they meant. And we go on trying to do to be all that you want us to be in the energy of our flesh. Forgive us, Lord. Strengthen us that we just draw close to you, that we rest in you, that we allow you to work the work you are working in our lives because you're there in our hearts, that we would just trust you to do what only you can do. And part of that is to make us holy, draw us away from this world, closer to you. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.